Good morning, Miss Peterson. I'm sorry to disturb you so early. The court has ruled that you require assistance in taking care of yourself. <laughs> I'm fine. I'm afraid it's not up to you to decide. The court has appointed me to be your legal guardian. What? You have to come with me. And remember, I'm here to help. My name is Marla Grayson. I'm just someone who cares. Marla Grayson, you've had amazing success. What's your secret? There is no secret, Peter. She forces them into the home, auctions off their house, and uses the proceeds to pay herself. Because caring is my job. Sit! I will grab your dick and balls, and I will rip them clean off. Big deal maker. I know what you do here. Your hustle. Look at all these cash cows on your wall just leaking money into your account. But Jennifer Peterson, she's off limits. She has very powerful friends who can make life uncomfortable for you. How uncomfortable are we talking? I love Marla Grayson. I don't like you. You only just met me. There's two types of people in this world. Predators and prey. I don't lose. I won't lose. I'm never letting you go. Oh, you're in trouble now. Fucking lioness. And that was a trailer for Girl Boss the movie. Uh, let's bring in the panel of party people. What's up, what's up? What's up, what's up, what's up? So, uh... <laughs> so on this one, we share the chat on the screen, uh, Billy, because it's, it's all patrons, so it's all friends behind the paywall. Um, and and uh, Toussaint says this about the trailer. <laughs> I don't think it carries the gravitas behind the message or the, or the seriousness of the nature of uh, the offense that's being done to these senior citizens, the way that movie is depicting, making it like a light comedy, ha ha ha. I mean, I you guess make it a com- I think you can make it a comedy, and I think you can make it interesting, and I think you can still get the point home. It's just when you're so busy, girl bossing the shit out of that movie, then no, it would have to be an Ianucci style death of Stalin where. The horror is right in your face. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, again, I felt Billy made a horror movie, and I think you could have made a horror movie out of this, much like uh, I'd get tired of Superman films, but that uh, guy, what is it called, where they made Superman a horror movie. Have you seen that one? No. You ever seen that one, where it's like a baby comes down, an alien baby? Like, is it Brightwood? Brightburn. 
right bright burn yeah the that's, TV that's, series. that's that's a horror movie version of the superman story because it's like well if you're 12 years old and you can kick your parents ass you're probably going to be a dick right i can shoot lasers out of my ass i'm ground me schmound me bitch <laughs> you ain't my real daddy it's that that's what <laughs> that's what bright burn is pretty much I'm everyone's daddy. <laughs> so I am going to uh, here Cuba and Pascal. I'm going to go off real quick so I can get the the phone set up to take calls. So if you guys have some questions for for Billy before I uh, do this to myself, go for it. Yeah, Billy. I, I main major question I wanted to ask you right is that. Um, what is your next project? And are you going to be staying in the lane of advocacy for people who have been abused in a guardianship for a while? Or are you moving on to a different subject matter? Um, well, it's hard to talk about next projects because my work is investigative. And so um, before, you know, I, I just, you know, you can't talk about things that you're investigating because. Right. But I can tell you, I just, yeah, you can't, yeah, you don't want people to know. I mean, a lot of stuff I do is undercover, but I I will answer the question on like, once you, I mean, once I stepped into this world of, you know, these people don't have a lot of people to help them. So you can't walk out of this. It's, this is, this is my life's work. It will be my life's work. I will be doing this stuff. I do it full time. I'm a full time advocate. People call me. I'm involved in different people's cases and I help them through this madness because there isn't a lot of people. I wish there was financing to help uh, so that I can bring other people on board to do this. I do this um, all pro bono uh, and it's literally a full time job. You have to read cases. You have to help people organize themselves. People do not know what to do with all their evidence and they don't know how to talk to press press don't listen. So they need advocates, they need lawyers, they need all that stuff. And I'm, I'm really like, a, you know, there's a couple of us doing this in, in the States. So to answer your question, like, you know, it's not about the cameras anymore. It's about me just, you know, uh, taking on, I'd love to build an agency and, and, and have, uh, and have representation because there really is nowhere to go. Um, so Billy, can you see this? Like a, yeah. Uh, to the filmmaker, how does the editing inform your presentation of the subject matter? What's the relationship between the formal cinematic presentation and the subject matter? I'm not sure I understand this, the relationship between the formal cinematic presentation and the you, subject you matter. You know, Pedro, you can always call in and ask, and ask the question. Uh, but I can, I can try, but if we oh, keep it up there, cause I'm going to probably need it. Uh, okay. so as far as editing goes, um, what I do first is I do interviews. I just interview people and then I work with my editor who I pretty much, yeah, she's the most amazing woman on the planet. Uh, her, her ability to tell stories. She, it, they really are her films, uh, because she really just finds the story. And then what we, when we edit the, um, when we edit the interviews that informs what our story is and then what we go back to the guardians a big chunk of the guardians was filmed in the last three weeks of me filming for four uh, years 
because Jesus. we edited what yeah we edited what we had together and realized what we needed and then we went back out and then so a lot of the stuff where you see me figuring stuff out uh, I've been already figuring that shit out for three years, four years, and I'm going back and I'm like, okay, I need this in this scene. So editing is huge. I, I wouldn't be where I am without, uh, without uh, my editor, Michelle Francis. She's the best. And I work with, I, hopefully I can just make movies with her for the rest of my life. Um, and what's the relationship between the formal cinematic presentation? It's kind of like a painting. A, a, a film is a painting. You go, you show up, you be present. And, uh, and what happens, it just organically starts, you start to find your style. If that answers your question, it's a, it's a process. Uh, you know, this is investigative, but at the same time, it's art as well. I'm a storyteller. And uh, it's just about being present and, and uh, allowing it. My new film uh, that's just about to be released is called Portrayal. It's a totally different movie look. It's still an investigation, but it's a total different look. And uh, and that's because the subjects come alive and you start to realize what kind of movie you're making. One thing that I noticed in the film was that there was a different way that um, you, you framed or presented the people who were sort of victims or advocates or, you know, on your side um, compared to officials or, um, or, you know, the private guardians themselves. And a lot of that, I think, um, comes from the fact that those people don't talk to you. You know, you have to, you have a limited amount of time with them and you're going to, if you're filming in their office, you just have this office kind of talking headshot, but it also kind of grounds the humanity of the victims a lot more, right? You're, um, you have different, uh, you know, close-ups, different types of shots with the people who are happy to talk to you, who are telling their story than the ones who are kind of hiding behind desks. Yeah, it's all about access. You got it. Uh, it's how much access you have to people informs what it is that you're going to film and informs the level of intimacy that you have. The victims in um, the, the relationship between the director and myself and the victims is, uh, you know, a, a many folds uh, relationship because in the end, at the beginning, is uh, they, they've not had anybody listen to them before I showed up. So I'm, I'm, I'm there as their documentarian, I'm there as their friend, I'm there as their rabbi, I'm there as, uh, you know, uh, somebody who, who's going to help them through this and you have a lot of time and it's like I, I get uh, you know I get to direct them I get to work with them uh, I get time to compose my shots and we spend days we spend years together so uh, there's definitely a lot more and, and also um, we don't go to the bad guys until the end of filming so because we don't want to expose ourselves we don't want to burn anything we don't want to, you know, uh, bring a, a unwanted attention on ourselves. So by the time we go to the bad guys, we've found our filmmaking style. We've found our uh, our groove. We have more money to shoot because you start with very little money. And then as you go along, you get uh, support and you get the network on board. So by the time we're filming, there's, we've got a good crew. We've got a good system. 
And so it's a, there's more polished, but there's more experimentation with the victims because we've been spending years with them and living with them. And great observation again. Yeah, you use a lot of stock footage when you were trying to uh, paint the picture for uh, April Parks, which I thought was uh, was great. As a yeah, as a was, filmmaker yeah. myself. There you go. Yeah, that was very hard. To, <laughs> April Parks was not, we didn't have access to, with thank God for Darcy Spears and her team uh, uh, in Las Vegas. We, we were able to, you know, utilize their stuff and, uh, yeah. And I, actually, another thing that I took away was how important the local investigative journalists were. Yeah. Um, I'm used to action news being like the butt of a joke, but they... <laughs> Kuba, I want to add this to your – I hate to interrupt you, but I want to add this on top of what you're saying, and maybe you forgot about this. This is during the time that uh, Sheldon Adelson – am I saying his name right? Yeah. Buys the local Vegas paper and started purging all the reporters. Yep. So yeah, – the, the Vegas Journal, yeah. Yeah, so when you're when you're talking to these cats that are that are working at this really small uh, Vegas paper, I was like, I, I kind of wanted to ask you if if we could hit up some of these these cats as well, because um, you had a black woman towards the end of the documentary. Yeah, that, she was amazing. Who was who? Who, who was, was that amazing? one? She had the appropriate um, level of paranoia too. <laughs> oh yeah, it took a, She was the very first person. I spoke to uh, in Vegas. She would not, she'd only meet me in a public space. Um, but she was my, uh, she was the most, I, I got the most information. She was the most useful as it shows up in the film. I mean, she'd been fighting this the longest. Her father had long passed like over a decade ago and she didn't, she has never given up that fight. Uh, she's an unbelievable woman. She would not go on camera until very much my last day of filming. Uh, so she was scared of the, of, of the, uh, of the, of the government, like cops coming after her or just, she didn't trust um, yeah, she just didn't want to be on, on, on camera for many reasons. She, she okay. didn't want to make it about her. Oh, her. Uh, it took a lot of convincing. She was an informant the entire time. She, it, it was, it's very much, uh, this is very, very much her movie, very much Darcy's movie. This movie wouldn't have this movie without, without them. And the older gentleman in the beginning, the, 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 the white guy who, uh, him and his wife were, were down there. Fighting. Yeah, Rudy. Yeah. yeah, Rudy. He was good. You he mean, has very good quotes. You mean the victim? You mean the victim? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That guy, honestly, uh, when he, he, he he's no longer with us, Rudy, uh, oh, and, and his wife's yeah. no longer with us. They both passed, oh. they both passed away since. Um, but uh, Rudy was a sound machine, a sound bite machine. It was unbelievable the things that would come out of this man's mouth. He literally would channel God. And uh, I, I, I would like to just make a movie just just with his quotes and the things that he would say. There were times that he would talk. I would just like everybody would look at each other and like, where the fuck did this guy come from? He was he, just unbelievable. This man was just like I could literally spend the, like all my time with him. He was just amazing. Pascal. 
No, I'm listening to the wisdom being displayed by all of my <laughs> fellow hosts here. And I'm finding this very enjoyable. It's interesting. Like nobody, nobody's calling. I always get nervous because this is what happens. We do this show for like a fucking hour, and you know we're not probably gonna stay that long. And phone doesn't ring or rings a little bit. And then once the show is over, the phone rings all the time. Can't hear there it. Right yeah. All right. So yeah. Default ringtone. Oops. Let's go. Hold up. Come on. Oh. Hold on, whoever. Whoever's calling. Here, let me get off air for a second. You guys talk amongst yourselves. <laughs> he just disappears like that. And he's like, all right, talk amongst yourselves. And, uh, so now, is there a what – what year exactly was the film produced? Are you up for any awards, uh, you know, that might be you might be seeing, or have you passed that time? Uh, it's been a while. We, we, we won a lot of awards. We uh, – I think we won, like, 11, 12 – Best film at festivals. Really, it, it, the film did the film did really well. Uh, we sold it all over the world, uh, but the, the states didn't get. Uh, they nobody picked it up in the states. Uh, it just didn't didn't do any business. You wouldn't think a film like this. I mean, it's probably the best reviewed film on Amazon. Like literally, there's I think two hundred films don't even get this many much reviews there's like 200 reviews and they're all five stars and they're all unbelievable glowing reviews it's really helped people but no broadcaster picked it up and our uh our uh our distributor didn't really do anything with it like they, they, and even mm. when i care a lot came out you would think like that they would do it but yeah it's a it's a real it can be a real shitty business well, uh, get, get ready know. billy you got your, you got your first this is revolution phone call on your left Thank you for calling what in. My, what was my favorite reaction to the film? It's hard to recall uh, what my favorite reaction to the film. I'm sure there were some really good moments, but. Can, can you guys hear on your left? Can you hear us? Yeah, I can hear you, but I'm still hearing Billy talk, so I, I don't want to be talking over him. Is that His, normal? I think. Can you guys, can, Pascal, can you hear the phone as well? Yes, sir. Okay. Yeah, everybody can hear you. Billy just froze. Okay, so, cool. So, yeah, you can talk over him right now. He's frozen. Deep state. <laughs> okay, perfect. <laughs> so I kind of wanted to center, you know, this is obviously a story of just absolutely sadistic uh, financial crime. Um, and at the beginning, we kind of touched on where the opportunity for that crime is coming from. Is this massive, like, $40 trillion, um, it, you know, direct transfer of wealth right, um, from boomers to Gen X and potentially some millennials. And I, I kind of wanted to talk a little bit about how the uh, how the implications of income inequality on that, because you're going to have ultra-wealthy people and classicure people transferring incredibly amounts of wealth to uh, other classicure people and how that opens up uh, just a tremendous amount of opportunity for nefarious, uh, you know, kind of even worse uh income inequality than we have today. Did you have something to say about that, Pascal? No, I think it's a very good observation. And another thing we have to realize is that with the current situation we have with state pension plans, where state pension plans are evaporating, but because of financial mismanagement and not being fully subsidized by the states that hold them, 
that we're also going to have a problem with uh, some of these retirees coming about who are not going to have subsidized pensions as well. So we're going to have the fear of some people who are retiring having their wealth or their money absconded but in guardianship type uh, paradigms that we see here. And we have another set of uh, boomer retirees leaving state and government jobs whose pensions have been completely evaporated because of either mismanagement or the inability of the states to fill their coffers coming about as well. So I, I think that there's going to be a, we're going to start seeing articles in mainstream media about the crisis of retirement. What does this mean? And I think it's, it's, it's a very big cauldron that already is going to be compounded with the reality of post pandemic uh, American economy, the potential for another crash, uh, the, the the never-ending instability of American and global capitalism post-2008 crash, uh, the also potentiality of uh, kind of a reactionary nationalist, almost kind of crypto-fascistic regimes playing on those in- in- economic uh, imbalances to justify, uh, you know, reactionary, very revanchist-type politics. It's all... The whole political economic arena right now in the world is in flux. It's very dangerous. And frankly, I don't think anyone on the right or left is doing anything to offer the average American or the average person in the West a politics that's not rooted in fear or paranoia. And mm-hmm. just to, to jump in on um, what you're saying about pensions and um, and retirement income insecurity if you think that the guardianship problem is bad now wait until there's a hedge fund that starts buying up um the private guardian you know mom and pop uh april parks operations we've whenever there's this kind of um money pot at scale available uh this potential revenue source eventually the uh big finance gets involved. It happened before the 2008 financial crisis with subprime mortgages. It's happening now with BlackRock buying up residential real estate and turning uh, homeowners into tenants. And mm-hmm. once the transfer is fully in place, I wouldn't be surprised if you'd see, you saw consolidation um, nationwide in mm-hmm. uh, guardianship, in elder care, in mental um, health industry, mental mm-hmm. health hospitals. Mm-hmm. That's Absolutely. that's why you're seeing a lot of people getting involved with the with yeah, and, uh, and old uh, and ger- gerontological prison. law firms mm-hmm. too, and mm. you, they'll package it up and find the most efficient means to uh, push people through the pipeline and separate them from their uh, their wealth and then their kids get nothing so you have you have intergenerational wealth transfer but only in like maybe the top 20 percent where it's secure mm-hmm. below that people that are expecting to um have something coming in that, that represents you know their their parents previous generations mm-hmm. hard work they'll end up right at right at the zero bound and well, if you like, like the most reason, like the rest um, of us who, who don't have money from their parents and what's what's really sad too is if you read some of the comments uh again on the, just the trailer just the, just a goddamn trailer there's people that are saying hey i live in vegas this happened to me 
and now we're homeless. We're all homeless. And there was multiple people that said that. And that's really frightening when you think about it, that, you know, they drain these people to the point where it's like their family is just like, nah, they took the house and we didn't have nowhere to stay. And I was living in a car and yada, yada, yada. Like it's, it's, these are nightmare stories. Are you still there on your left? Uh-oh. Who? What? What? There you go. Yeah, what, oh, one of the poor Jeremy in Portland. The thing. I, oh. you can, go ahead. Go ahead. Talk. Go ahead. Oh, um, yeah. So one of the scariest things is how quickly financial capital, particularly hedge funds and private equity, are going to financialize and mechanize this entire process. And, and, and really, especially with things like a reverse mortgages, uh, because America is so house rich and cash poor, that really poses a great threat to sort of the middle income, um, middle wealth, right? That we would consider middle class or even uh, somewhat comfortable. Uh, that's going to get ground into a pulp. And that's, that's really the dynamic that I see causing uh, a significant amount of stability going forward. I agree. Or instability. <laughs> no, I no, I, I understand what you're saying, and I agree. There's a great book called Home Wreckers that talks about the the crisis with the reverse mortgages and and also the just the real estate crisis in general. It's a pretty long book. Uh, investigative journalist, actually out, out out here in the Bay Area, that wrote it, um, and really breaks down the players in that game. Um, and, and took it all the way to the Trump family, actually, in his in his uh, investigative journal of Donald Trump and even people like Michael Dell. Um, who else was involved in that shit that we know? George Soros. So it was a bipartisan affair, if you will. Well, keep in mind, George Soros got rich off of bankrupting like a bunch of pensioners in England. Um, but anyways, I, I don't want to keep you guys too long, but I appreciate the show and all the work you're doing and the, the kind of counter narrative that we're able to have on the show. Really appreciate how um, anti-reductionist it is. And I'll definitely be calling in on Saturday because uh, AI is sort of my, my spot. And uh, I have some questions about uh, Ben and Ab's book because uh, I agree with his overarching thesis. But I think he misses a few, few key uh, dynamics. Oh shit! And you know Saturday is just we open the phone lines up. So awesome! Take care. Thank you on your left. Hey, listen, I got to uh, jump off, man, because I am uh, gotta get ready for tomorrow. You, gotta, you just got a call. Jeremy Six just called in. Oh, send a voicemail. Jeremy, you are on the air. What is up, Jay? Hey, good morning. Good good morning. Good evening, everybody. I got a uh, question for the panel that I think this also kind of ties in with. Uh, Tuesday show too. I wanted to ask about, as Pascal mentioned, uh, we're going to be reading more and more headlines about the the crisis in retire with uh, retirement care because of all the baby boomers are retiring. I'm wondering what effect the, uh, does the attempt at automating home health care, if they're ever able to pull this off, would that have on either just taking care of like all of these attention well. Some of them are not even pensioners anymore because they don't have pensions. Mm. Or alternately, if we, uh, what if, I guess the plus side, because of the explosion in home healthcare jobs, what if um, we were able to organize a lot more pink collar and home healthcare jobs and get, become a, like a new like labor struggle in helping? And would that help fight off these effects of you know um, the you know of like the Guardian problem happening? If they actually have like 
you know, uh, organized workers, like working with and protecting these people. It's interesting. So, I think that, I think that Pascal, do you want to say something and jump off? I mean, I'm, I'm still pondering about the automation, automation of the home healthcare worker, right? Because that's one of the things that Benedict says is a, a, a future open space for maintaining the uh, functionality of labor. Because he doesn't particularly think that, that that's going to be re- replaced by uh, artificial intelligence or automation as a, as a job source. So uh, uh, I got to really think about that in terms of if it is, what does that mean? I think if we come to a point where we actually are seeing home health care replaced by automation, then it's kind of a wrap for almost every other type of you know human service profession that we're going to be seeing in this country. Uh, even the high high skill professionals, law, accounting, so on and so forth. I think algorithms will be filing, doing, writing the petitions, writing the, uh, doing the legal arguments, doing the accounting for large scale and even small small scale uh, uh, businesses and law firms. And uh, you're going to have people going to legal Zoom. It's, it's, it's uh, there's a lot of scary potential potentiality out here. And I'm seeing the discourse on the left and the right, and I'm seeing some people on the left think that it's not going to be that grave or significant of a change. And I, I just still, I just don't know if I'm buying this argument that technology is not going to really have a significant role in labor obsolescence. Um, I'd like to hear what Cuba thinks. Cuba thinks about this. So um, I think that, uh, well, for instance, Japan is doing its best to try to automate elder care uh, because. You have an aging society. A lot of people need care. Um, the source of pink collar labor is often uh, immigrant women. Um, uh, that's home healthcare nurses are often first generation um, or working class women. Um, and Japan doesn't want to bring in uh, immigration on a large enough scale to, to fill that demand. So they're trying to get robots to do it. And they're, it's hard, it's very, very difficult, and they have a lot of sort of partial solutions to very specific issues with um, within aging populations. And it's possible that they'll, they'll crack the code and they'll figure it out. They might figure out a Japanese solution that doesn't travel internationally. But then again, you know, like, Nintendo and PlayStation conquered the world, so maybe <laughs> elder care robots, you know, um, nurse son will will make a breakthrough. Japan and those fucking robots. Yeah, they love them, and um, I think that on a larger scale, there's a, a real risk of uh, increased labor obsolescence, and the and it's. What, what tends to happen with automation-driven unemployment is you destroy working-class incomes and then you shunt people into jobs that are basically high-touch service for the people who didn't lose their income or their wealth. Of low um, wage, low wage, too. Low wage, too. And um, that might actually be the new source of pink-collar workers. Um, I think that if there were a, a mechanism like uh, universal health care in Canada or something where uh, you had 
Um, I'm, I'm not saying that this exists in Canada, but it would be a universal entitlement, not anything that you pay for on a market basis or it's means tested. But at a certain age, you just are entitled to a nurse that comes in, probably not full time, to check on you and to help you do uh, take your medication or other things. And maybe if you your problems um, progress, you get full-time assistance. Again, this is a person that's that draws a salary that isn't dependent on guardianship or your assets or your income. Then you have, you're introducing an agent that doesn't have an incentive to exploit the old person, to exploit the elderly. Um, potentially, you might still have problems, people being people, but you won't have this um, incentive structure that turns elder care into a profit center by squeezing all the assets out of uh, out of people under guardianship. So I think that um, that could be a way to introduce uh, another check against this kind of predatory elder abuse. And the key to that is just removing the income source or any kind of financial incentive from the elder care service. Does that answer your question there, Jeremy? Uh, pretty much. Also, uh, just a follow-up little note. Uh, we're talking about both, yeah, there's a lot of efforts in Japan to automate home health, but also, because I remember hearing about this a couple years, well, last year, but it's kind of a thing of hospitality is still one of those things that they can't really automate because people don't like being waited upon by droids, which is one of the reasons why Vegas is so like union heavy because you can't um like you can't automate hospitality there. And so I'm wondering if there's some sort of like connection point between because um, I think you know I think a lot of AIs you know, just kind of a, a thing to suck up DC and, uh, but not really work. But anyway, oh, also, real quick, which, uh, what time are you guys going to be on Majority Report tomorrow? The first half or the second half? Probably, you know? probably the second half. I don't know. I'd be, if we were on the first half, I'd be really shocked if they'd had us on the first half. They haven't told you what time yet? No, because okay. we're probably on the second half. If they had us on the first half, then somebody really fucked up over there to have us on the, the what time is the first half? Noon your time. So it goes from noon to two? Some shit like that. Well, shouldn't they tell us when to report there? Well, I mean, it's not the military, motherfucker. Damn. I just found out about you guys uh, an hour ago. <laughs> <laughs> coming on here. <laughs> Are you good, Jeremy? Yep. And also let us know when the next nerd night is. Of course, you're on it. So, of course, I got to let you know. Fuck. Peace. Cool, man. That was Jeremy from Giving the Mic to the Wrong Person podcast. Also helps us out with our movie night. Uh, fuck, maybe we should do Billy's movie for movie night. It's not that long. That's a good point. Maybe we should do that. Billy, would you be down if we did your movie for movie night? It's not that long. It's, a, it's 104 minutes. It's the longest movie. Yeah, it's in the not world. that long. I'll be to see three hour documentaries and shit. I'm, yeah, I'm, you guys. I'm waiting for part two. Sure. 
we 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 did the, the spook who sat by the door for our first movie night and people really dug it and i think we should do uh maybe we should do billy's movie because now That'd we can be our cop like yeah we know this is our homie you or you could do Billy. my new movie maybe oh fuck yeah the, the new movie let's get the new movie Wait, what, what's the uh, what's the um, distribution when you guys uh, play? Only Patreon. Like, it's all, it's oh, only yeah, sure. Yeah, because what, what we do is we watch it with them. Like we literally like how we can see you and you can see us. We do yeah, that with do uh, You want me to tell you what the new movie's about? Can you? I mean, I'm not trying to right get now. you. Oh. No, Yay. I mean, no. Like I mean, you got to decide if you want to uh, play the new movie. Maybe it's not. Uh, I think it's an interesting film. Maybe I think you guys would like it. Basically, what it is is there is a man who uh, was a very famous painter out of Israel, and uh, and so it's about I, 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 he's never let press access him before. Mm-hmm. And I guess at the end of his career, he decided to let somebody. But what he mm-hmm. didn't know was that I actually knew the real truth about his art. And so at the same time, I'm following this kid who is whose grandfather was exploited by this artist. And he uh, all the art was done by his grandfather and he never got acknowledgement. And the kid has demonized this painter who exploited his grandfather. And so I follow this kid as he on on, uh, as he. you know, figures out the mystery of and to confront this uh, this painter, and uh, oh, so it's a heist. It's yeah. a it's a heist movie. I mean, that's a gotcha a whole, interview. <laughs> yeah, I mean the whole. Yeah, I mean I interviewed that's this guy for a year, uh, for two years, and he didn't know what uh, that I the truth, so he would just lie to me. The Man, that is, a sl- wow. that is a long time. Wow. Cause that's scary. Wow. Yeah. Also, I think the lesson here is don't fuck with Billy because he will <laughs> wait two years. Right? You won't even know he's coming for you. It'll just be like that Canadian, aw shucks, you know, tell me a story. And then you'll uh, you'll see yourself on screen and it's like, oh, I'm the <laughs> Yeah, I don't know why people I don't know why people let me interview them. It's just like it's not a good idea, especially that's if you've got something to hide. Up. Especially if you're hiding your entire life. Like what? As I'm saying, usually these bad guys are stupid. Look, man, you that that is like some super duper evil. Pascal, do you have take off? Yeah, I gotta jump off, man, because I, yeah. I gotta get some get ready. No, for the get some rest, because like, I'm probably gonna hit you last minute and be like, Pascal, answer the phone. We gotta get on majority report. So. uh have a, I know, I, I know. We'll just blame white people. Uh, <laughs> I take it, man. I take it the blame. I'm a Jew. Right, so you blame the Jew and blame the white guy. It's like oh, it's like a double, double win. With me. Yeah, you get a double, double win. win. All right, Pascal. Yeah, I'm out, man. Sign off to everybody. Peace to the chat. Peace to the group, Bill. Love to nice have to you. Meet you Let's stay in here. touch, man. Let's stay in touch. Yeah, definitely, definitely, man. We might do that show with your movie, man. Shout Can out to the chat. Know. All right, I'm out. Peace. Now, Exclusive. Now, oh shit, I got rid of the wrong person. Real, real talk. Uh, Pascal and I did a show earlier today that was supposed to be a half hour, and it turned into an hour and a half. 
an hour of us on air and another half hour of us just yelling, not at each other, <laughs> but at the motherfuckers that were in the in the chat, uh, because because I'm not I'm kind of like I'm blaming on Glenn Greenwald because Glenn Greenwald tweeted out our stuff. Thousands of views, right, are coming in. All these people are watching. So when we went live, first of all, I didn't know that a person of that stature was going to tweet out our stuff. We knew we were going to go live and maybe a few people were watching. So people are watching it started just kind of talking shit. And we've kind of tried to build a nice community because I don't really like shit talk. I don't come from a world in real life where you can talk shit to people and not get fucked up. So like you said, it's easier to be nice. I spent a lot of years traveling around the world, touring, playing music. It's a lot easier to be nice when I'm a stranger in your fucking city and come in there like I think my dick's big and I can fuck everybody in town. It's just easier to be nice. And when people come in the chat and they're talking shit and we wasn't shit because how dare we platform a quote unquote politician. This is a regular ass fucking woman that just, you know, had enough. I was like, well, I'm going to run for this little open seat because I hate the corruption because she works with the people. She works with the elderly. She works with the homeless. She works with the formerly incarcerated as a public defender. Monster. You know, yeah, people are like, oh, she's a politician. I'm like, she, how, why is she Joe Biden all of a sudden? Like, there's a there's a big difference between, yeah. you know, John Q. Citizen that says, well, I'm going to fucking do my civic duty and I'm going to run for this state seat that literally is just wide open. If she doesn't take it or at least even try to run for it, then it goes to the wife of the of the dude that had it before. And what does that say about politics when we're handing shit down like that? Isn't so that what we don't we've, want? We've hit the neo-feudal phase of late. <laughs> if if you're good, like, are you good with that? And she's like, look, I'm one of three people in the whole state assembly that fucking pays rent. Everybody else is a property owner. She had left politics. She understands about movements. But people were just like kind of being a little, little not everybody, there's a few people being kind of rude. And it really, really fucked me up. Right. And so me and Pascal were just we're, again, we weren't yelling at each other, but we were yelling at the situation. And uh, it just I, I think he was a little drained. <laughs> I mean, if you well, bring the similar, fire, you burn out. It's similar with business, right? Like. The whole concept of business was supposed to be serving the community. That that was mm-hmm. like the 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 uh, you know the classical version of business of the exchanging of uh, you know to service. We we identify a the need market for myth. The com- we we identify a need for the community and uh, and we create a service for it. And so business is not uh, a bad concept. It's what happened. To it, and it's what, and it's the same thing with politics and policy. And it's like it, politics is supposed to be something is to serve people and to uh, to uh, answer issues within community. And then you know, they, there's a as you had said before of uh, you know, it take away the a way to make money out of something, but will solve it. It's like you know, it just creates the wrong energy around it. There is a way 
to live sustainably on this planet with people sustainably and, and to support people. It's what I do. I mean, it's like it, there is, but you don't have people who think that and you've got greedy motherfuckers who, I, who want to hurt people. So um, I, I understand where some of that comes from. Um, when uh, I did my undergrad at uh, Harvard in the, from 98 to 2002 and the, what, the students, what, you know, this future leadership class is being taught is that the market rules everything. The yes. market is freedom. Um, and we need more of it and we need it everywhere. That everything is better when you introduce profit and competition and these kinds of financial incentives, you know, whether it's um, making widgets or housing the homeless or looking after elderly people or running the government. You need as much of that sweet, sweet capitalism, that sweet, sweet um, profit-driven uh, motivation um, as possible. And that the people who are saying, no, I mean, maybe there shouldn't be money in politics, or maybe there's certain things that shouldn't be privatized or run on a for-profit basis. Those people are at best dinosaurs, at worst, like saboteurs, you know? Um, and what we've seen is just in the United States, especially like in the US and the UK are the furthest along, but um, virtually every country has, has pushed in that direction where everything is for sale, right? Um, individual, it's almost a duty to make as much money as possible because only with wealth do you get any kind of status or security or um, value. And when you inculcate that idea for the people who are going to be running the society, then it just permeates everything and unleashes all of this greed and where um, before there was, or, you know, in an ideal world, there's things that shouldn't be for sale that, um, you know, a judge shouldn't be looking for <laughs> his side gig. He should just be judging. Um, yeah. But that's, that's, that's not the world we live in right now. Yeah, there's a, a, another investigation that I'm doing into the SEC and you oh, maybe think about it where it's like, you know, the SEC is there to, um, to so they're supposed to be monitoring and policing uh, regulation around Wall Street. But these fuckers are just in there so that when they come out, they get offered a huge Wall Street job. And so they're they're not going to want to you know they don't want to create bad politics because they really want to set themselves up. And the guys who are coming in there are from Wall Street, so it's just a revolving door around so, these fuckers that are just policing themselves. And and you know there's all of uh, people. Um, it's easy to say that uh, the criticism of like financial regulation and and big finance is like conspiracy theories, but Goldman Sachs has an up or out business um, promotions model, you know, HR model. Uh, most of the Wall Street banks do. So you get hired as an analyst out of a fancy school or because you know the right person, 
but they get really smart, driven, motivated people to come in, work 100 hours a week, totally burn themselves out, but they're only going to keep some of them. Mm -hmm. Most of them, they're going to let go. And Goldman Sachs figured out, um, because Wall Street was ruthless for being completely callous with the people that they um, that they don't promote. You know, you get your cardboard box with your fern in it and you have to um, get escorted by security out. Um, Goldman realized that this they were wasting a potential opportunity because these were talented people that they knew they already had relationships with. So and they had the right credentials. They could do all kinds of things. So instead of the walk of shame, you get called in and you're like, look, you, you didn't get the promotion. You can't stay here. But there's this job at the SEC or there's this job at the stock exchange or there's this job at the Department of Justice or, the, or, or finance that we think you'd be great for. And you should go there and you should do the job and, you know, do impress us, right? Like um, distinguish yourself there and we'll take another look in a few years and maybe you can jump in higher up the food chain, um, which means that you're basically seeding the entire financial apparatus, the, which is supposed to be governing you and regulating you and drawing the lines of what you can't do with people who literally have had their start at your company, who have relationships with your company, and who hope to go back to your company. Do you, is that, uh, um, do you have like um, intelligence on that? Like you, that, that can, cause that would be very helpful for me based on, cause that's what we found, but I don't, you know, that I just I'll, have a couple individuals who are running these uh, uh, investigations, so. I'll look it up. Um, the, I, I know it both from people in the financial sector um, yeah. and some kind, like some secondhand, um, some investigative um, sources. I think that there was a former Goldman exec who bragged about it at some point. Um, and yeah, um, yeah, I'll, this I'll is see what I can find. Because that's really good insight. Um, uh... I'm looking into this guy, he's called the priest of Wall Street, and he basically exposed this shit, and they they turned on him. He was a priest who was a short, he was a, a short trader, and uh, he uncovered some crazy shit, and they, he was a whistleblower, and they turned on him, and so we're trying to help him, uh, we're trying to help him out of it. Yeah, the, I'll, um... I'll um, get me your contact uh, information. Yeah, of course. That's definitely hook up. Absolutely. The, and I'll, anyway, I'll but, and you. by the way, mm -hmm. Cologne is the cool part of BC. I don't know what he's talking about. The uh, like, I'm talking the goddamn truth. I'm still here, you motherfuckers. <laughs> you know that shit's in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> yeah, it's nice. Interior is gorgeous. Yeah, we've got a lake. Look. I have baby quail in my yard. Look, I, this is what I'm going to say to you. How many baby quail do you have in your yard? I'm going to say this to your baby quail, Lake motherfucker. I'm going to say this to you and Billy's ass. The last time I was, no, I'm lying. That wasn't the last time I was in Canada. In 2016, touring in Canada, 
we had to come. I forget where we were playing. Maybe Edmonton. I forget where we were playing. And we had to come through. We had just played Great Falls, Montana. And if you don't know where that is, I'm not surprised. And crossing the border, the only way we knew we hit the border, you see a flag and a shack and your your phone stops working. Mm-hmm. Right? Because the international tower has to yep. switch over. That was the only way. We were so far in the middle of nowhere. I was like, where the fuck are we? And as we're crossing... Oliver. What, what, what do you call like it? A, Quaker? Sounds like Oliver. <laughs> Quakers? Are they Quakers or... or uh, bars? No, what do you call those people that uh, they churn butter? Mennonites. Yep. They made a Mennonite at the border take all their shit out. And they went through all oh. churn butter. No, the um, there was a Mennonite drug smuggling ring operating out of Alberta. There you go. Yeah, come on, man. Right. I guess it was profiling technically, but like. <laughs> I. But it's okay to profile. It's okay. I was terrified. I was like, they're gonna fucking we're we're gonna get in so much trouble. We didn't deal. We we just we actually had to have uh, for this time going through because Canada had just changed their law. You no longer needed a work visa to play. And my ex is Canadian, so usually they would see the passport and when you cross in Vancouver and just go move along. Um, and these people were like, no, we have to check all of your financials to make sure you have enough money to leave the country. Well, actually, bored, it's man. actually not good. It, no, it's actually uh, if you have an American and a Canadian in a car together, it's actually very difficult to get they across assume, the borders. They assume that you're together and one of you is illegally immigrating. Yeah, exactly. Uh, it's very difficult. Both ways. No, I was yeah, not. Both ways, especially going into states. It's very difficult. They usually they would wave us through all the time. Again, going through the bigger city, that was it was just a shack in the middle of nowhere, and I was like, oh man, this is this is intense. And then driving in that uh, the Badlands, yeah, fuck, man, Beautiful. mother fuck. But you know, look, Billy, you're you're way my, nowhere in Canada. Hell yeah. Apparently, and you know what else you guys don't like? Truck stops. That's- <laughs> That's like status. Y'all d- do not like truck stops. I mean, that's kind of true. The um, like the little gas station true. by the side of the road. That's much more um, Canada scale. Yeah. No, I've actually been to Pine Ridge. Someone's talking about Pine Ridge. I've been to Pine Ridge and, and South Dakota. I've been there too. But it is getting late for me as well. If you guys can't tell, and I hope you can't, it's really fucking hot here and in this room. There is no AC, and I'm literally melting. Kuba, thank you. Congratulations. Uh, I want to say with Pascal on air that uh, all the great shit that's happening uh, for us would never happen if it wasn't for you guys, you, Jean, Pascal. People like uh, Ture that that help out behind the scenes, um, and I love you guys. And I'm gonna be hella bigging you up on the air tomorrow 
on this big show that we're doing. Billy, you have no idea how happy you made me returning that email. Uh, I wanted to scream throughout the house at like one, two in the morning that the filmmaker actually got back to me. Someone was joking in the chat initially that we had made it because we got a real deal filmmaker on the show. Um, this show has shifted so far from what it was originally because I'm a musician. So it was like a music show. And I was like, oh, I can just call up all my music friends. I can't get my music friends on the show now at this point. <laughs> <laughs> They're like, we don't know what you're talking about, man. We just know Trump's <laughs> Can we say Trump bad? No, I'm see, that's a few of my music friends still come on here. Um, thank you guys in the chat. Thank you guys for calling. Uh, watch us tomorrow on the Majority Report. Definitely Saturday is going to be a big show. We're talking uh, AI and automation. Um, uh, oh, and then next week, is that to read her fucking book? Uh, Aviva Chomsky. Is coming back on the mm. show. Wow. So Damn. if you're a longtime show follower, you know that I interviewed Aviva Chomsky. And I'll say this because you guys always talk about how Pascal has the questions. And I'll leave because I think this is funny. And I hope you guys find it amusing as well. I used to do the show in studio. The studio where I lived was a music rehearsal space in West Oakland and it had dial up. And or not dial up. What do you call it? What's the thing of right above dial up? That's really not that good. And no one has it anymore. Fiber. Whatever it was, it was really, I, we had really shitty connection or I had a really shitty connection. And I had booked this interview and I was like a couple minutes late. Getting back to, to hook everything up and, and talk to her. And it was just audio only. And someone else was using the connection. Usually at, when I was doing stuff in studio, if I did it early enough, no one would be online. Someone else was, it was in the building and uh, the connection got spotty. So I couldn't hear a word she said. I only heard it up immigration. Hot. But because <laughs> I wrote out all my questions, I would just wait for silence and ask a question. She had no idea. I couldn't hear her. Sweating my ass off. So I think the show is going to sound horrible. I listened to it back because now I'm like, oh, wow. No one can tell that I couldn't hear a fucking word she was saying. Interesting. And so she promotes the show on her college that she teaches at website. Like, oh, I was on the show. It was a really good show. So when I hit her up again, Recently, I was like, hey, uh, you think about coming back on the show? She's like, yeah, well, yes, that sounds great. So I'm very excited to, to make up not being able to hear a word she said and follow up anything. And I came with the questions that day. I was prepared. So before Pascal was prepared, <laughs> I just want y'all to know I was the prepared one. That's all I want you to know. Billy, thank you, thank you again, and we're serious about doing your movie for movie night. I'll I'll be in yeah, touch. Let me know. And if you want, do you, can, is it okay if I pass your email on to Cuba? Of course, I can't wait to talk to all you guys. I'm just get on socials, Let's get on all the socials, you know. Oh well, you've said nothing but a word, Mince. Nothing but a word. 
Like we'll 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 do it. And so also we have a new video out that we just did for uh, Zero Books. It's doing very well. Uh, and we we are out. Thank you, Billy. Thank you, Kuba. Thanks, Thanks everybody. everybody. Really nice to be here. Thank you. Once you hear music, you know it's time to go. It's like the Oscars. Right? And you know what's great? I, I play it all because I'm not paying for uh, for licensing. Royalty free. Royalty free? Because, bitch, it's all me. <laughs> Amazing. All right, guys. We are out.